Hi, welcome to the StoryWorth podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Krista Baum, co-founder of StoryWorth. On this podcast, we feature true stories written by StoryWorth writers. If you're new to StoryWorth, we help people write their life stories, the big stories and the small ones. Once a week, we send our writers a question to help inspire their writing. They reply to the email with an answer or story that comes to mind. At the end of the year, we print what they've written into a beautiful keepsake book. Every story written using StoryWorth is private, but for this podcast, the writers volunteered to share their stories publicly with you. Today's story is deeply personal. The tale of one woman's decision to give up her firstborn for adoption and her decades-long journey towards true closure. Mary Holloway, the author of today's story, is here to talk with us. But before we talk to her, we're going to hear Mary's story, read by voice actress Maria Williams, as Mary answers the question, what's the most selfless thing you've ever done? What's the most selfless thing I've ever done? That's a toughie. It's not that I've done too many acts of kindness to choose from or too few, but answering the question feels a little like patting myself on the back. Aren't we supposed to do our good deeds anonymously, not expecting any recognition? Like most people, I think a lot of my life has been self-serving, primarily helping those I know and love. But sometimes life brings about situations that are bigger than ourselves, and our decisions have to reflect that. I think releasing my baby for adoption is at the top of that list. The summer before starting a teaching job with the U.S. Army overseas, I met someone. Ironically, this young man was an anti-war activist and the backdrop of our romance was at the height of the Vietnam conflict, a most unpopular war. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area teaching second grade and enjoying life. I joined an under 30 singles group that did all sorts of activities together, hiking, road rallies, folk dancing, game nights, etc. I'm a poor to mediocre bridge player, but it was at bridge game one night that I met this new fellow. He was funny and interesting and smart. I couldn't possibly have impressed him with my card playing skills. So I was a little astonished that he showed any interest in me at all. But he did, and we spent a lot of time together that summer. Even while I grew absolutely smitten with him, I was still preparing for my move to Europe, doing all that was needed to leave that fall. We hiked, we camped, we even went backpacking in Yosemite National Park. And all this time, he never uttered the two words I longed to hear from him don't go. Instead, he said things like, things between us are going too fast. So after our season together, we parted ways, me heading to work for the army in Germany while he stayed to protest the military and its involvement in Vietnam. If I was initially surprised and even thrilled to be chosen by this young man, I was equally stunned a few months later by his rejection. He sent a letter that included the line, I don't feel anything. This was about the time I realized I was pregnant. I felt no position to ask or demand anything of him. One of my fellow teachers in Germany was from Atlanta. She contacted her mother, who agreed to take me in when I resigned my teaching position and went back to the U.S. I knew I couldn't return to my mother and grandmother in Colorado. For them, a child out of wedlock was a great shame. So I stayed with this very kind woman for a while. I found an agency that would assist me in releasing my baby for adoption when the time came. I was very fortunate to work with a lovely and understanding social worker named Louisa. Later in my pregnancy, I went to stay in a boarding house where the agency placed its clients waiting to give birth. My roommate was a college girl from Montana who traveled to Georgia because her sister lived there. 
The boarding house was awful, but she and I became friends, and together we managed to stay reasonably happy. While I waited for my baby to be born, not signing release papers never even occurred to me. I felt my only option was to give an anonymous couple a child who would make their lives complete. I imagined I would then go on with my life keeping this secret forever. But once my baby was born, the nurse asked if I wanted to see her. My instant reply was that I wanted to spend every possible moment I could with her. I had a lot to tell her. Mostly, I tried to pour a lifetime of love into her. It was a love I felt for her that I hadn't even fully realized before meeting her. Luisa, my social worker, took me into her office a day or two later where I signed my name on the paperwork and began to cry. I was afraid I would die, and at the same time, I was afraid I wouldn't. I asked myself, how could anyone manage to live with such pain? To have to choose such pain? After taking me home that day, Luisa went to the office and tore up the release papers. Then the real work began, trying to form a plan and trying to decide the greatest good for this baby. I imagined the fantasy life we would lead together, just baby and me. I contemplated the necessary explanations to society about her father and agonized over the fear my daughter would be ashamed of me. I tried to fathom a life without her. Would signing the release papers be the greatest possible good? I didn't know. I couldn't decide. Finally, Luisa told me it was time to make a decision once and for all. By that point, she and I had spent hours talking about the family and the life I wanted for my daughter, and Luisa promised me she had the family I was looking for. She gently urged me to decide what I was going to do and to move forward. So I took the bus to her office, still dithering in my head, and then, once again, I signed the release papers. I knew I had to get myself back home on the bus that day, but I was overwhelmed and coming to terms with the enormous price of writing those 10 letters on that piece of paper. So reflecting on it now, perhaps this decision wasn't so selfless after all, but it was certainly the hardest thing I've ever had to do. In those few days at the hospital after she was born, I whispered to her all the love and hopes I had for her. Three months after finalizing the paperwork, I received a letter from my social worker, Luisa, she described the family reunion my daughter's adoptive parents attended so the baby could meet her new relatives. The promise of two loving parents with grandparents, aunts, and uncles to welcome her was only just the beginning of my hopes for her. Another one of those hopes was that she would never be ashamed of me or the circumstances of her birth. She was born in 1968, right on the cusp of social change and sexual freedom, but the lifelong shame of being a child born outside marriage was still very real. And so began the years of learning to trust that my social worker had been right and learning to live with the hope that the family I'd asked for was loving my baby and raising her to be kind, strong, and happy. These were also the days of closed adoptions. Releasing her meant I had no rights to her, no information about her. She would never know my name or her birth story. All records were sealed, and not even the adoptive parents had anything but vague descriptions of the birth mother, such as her level of education and general health the door between us had truly closed. And that's what I believed as the decades went by. Not many people beyond my mother and siblings knew about my child, born and released. I told my husband, Don, as we were getting serious about one another, but she remained unspoken. As the years passed, I became a mother twice again. Our family life was full and happy, and also woven with my frequent thoughts and fantasies of my unknown girl and her life in another home. 
Those passing years brought changes in the country's view of closed adoptions, and a movement began to open birth records and to establish registries of adoptees and birth parents who wished to be found. What a staggering concept. When all files were sealed and all doors were closed, I could still dream about a happy reunion with my child. But what if I registered to be found and she had no desire to look for me? What if she was ashamed of me? Even though I had broken society's rules all those years ago and gotten pregnant, I was never filled with shame. Even when it was expected of me in Georgia while I awaited her birth at the boarding house for unwed mothers. Signing papers that said I was no longer her mother was a penance I chose but the prospect of being shunned by her paralyzed me. I couldn't find the courage to enroll in a mutual consent registry, so I left that possibility behind. As my children grew up, I shared with them the story of my firstborn and the painful decisions I had to make and how these difficult decisions make us who we become. Then one day in 1997, I opened a letter from an unknown sender. The first words were, I believe I am the daughter you released for adoption. I stopped reading and called my husband on the phone to read him the first paragraph. He offered to come straight home, but by then I'd pulled myself together enough to continue the letter. It was a lovely introduction to a young woman, a graduate student, recently married, named Elizabeth by her adoptive parents. Her message continued for pages, which I devoured, absorbing each new piece of information about the baby I said goodbye to nearly 30 years before. As it turned out, a sibling on her birth father's side had tracked down the adoption agency I worked with before her birth. The agency reached out to Elizabeth to see if she wanted to make this contact. Her first response was no, but a second request from that side of the family brought a change of heart. With her consent, the agency adoption records became available to her. My caseworker Louisa was an extraordinary woman, and this was confirmed by the carefully prepared records she kept of our meetings all those years ago, detailing the many hopes I had for my baby. After reading through these records, Elizabeth, or Liz, to her family and friends, was determined to even risk rejection by reaching out to me. From her perspective, I was a stranger who might very well not wish to hear from her. But she wanted to let me know that the life I wished for her long ago as an apprehensive young mother was in fact the life she had led. She included a phone number, and I called her that evening. We talked for hours, and she explained how she had searched for me for a long time. Her breakthrough came scrolling the archives of my hometown newspaper and finding my mother's obituary, which contained my married name and current location in Texas. She was dogged in her search, and I am so grateful. I asked Liz if her folks were uncomfortable with my enthusiastic welcome of their daughter into my life. She apparently turned to her dad and posed my question to him. His response was, you cannot have prayed for someone for 29 years and not love them. Their blessing for Liz and me to create what we will of our relationship has meant so much to me. When we chose to finally meet in person, we decided the mountains of Colorado would be a good place to step away from our regular lives and have uninterrupted time together. So my husband Don and I found ourselves waiting nervously at the airport to meet a woman we had never met in person before, my child. The excitement and nerves I felt must have put me in some sort of altered state because I had completely forgotten to bring anything to welcome her. No sign, no bouquet of flowers, nothing. So in the end, it was just me, empty-handed, scanning the crowd for my daughter and reminding myself to breathe. And then there she was, no signs or flowers necessary. We hugged and we cried. I introduced Don and he snapped our first photo. And then we stepped into our future together as family. 
Hi, I'm Mary Holloway, and I'm talking to you from Houston, Texas. And I am Liz England Kabalka, and I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. And how are you two related? She is the child I released for adoption and believed I would never see in my life again. And the fairy tale that came true was that she's a part of my life. Yes, I um, am one of those uh, wildly fortunate creatures who can claim two mothers. This all came together so perfectly. It's amazing. I know, it does sort of feel like that sometimes. I'm like, God, they should make a Hallmark movie out of our story. So Mary, when you were about to meet Liz... Were you nervous about her adoptive family's reaction? I wanted to be very clear when we first met one another that I wasn't coming back into her life to be her mother. She had the mother that I had claimed I wanted for her. I was guaranteed that by my social worker, and it was reaffirmed when I first met her on the telephone. And I was content just to be a part of her life in however she wanted it. For a long time, we were very cautious and very careful, but her family, her parents, made it very clear to me that they had room in their hearts to make me a part of the grand family. And so it was very easy to feel a part of the family, no matter what I was called. It was just the grand welcome without judgment that was so humbling and so meaningful to me. I never was concerned after that that they saw me as any sort of interloper or a rival for for affection. No, I was just going to say, I mean, my parents have always expressed so much gratitude to Mary. You know, they have so enjoyed getting to know her as a person. I think that she's somebody that they, if they had lived... And the same town, they would have been friends, which is, you know, so wonderful that you can have that kind of little added bonus. They, yeah, they just, they laugh and enjoy one another when they're together, which is, who could ask for more than that, right? I understand that your biological father's child approached you twice wanting to connect. You said no the first time, but you said yes the second. What was it that changed for you between those two attempts? Curiosity. (laughs) I had never had a sister. I'd grown up with two brothers. I'd always wanted a sister. How did she find you? Were you in a registry? No. So in Georgia, which is where the adoption took place, parents who had sacrificed their rights were not allowed to search, but siblings could. And so she did. And that's how I discovered discovered my origin story. So as Mary described in the story, you two had a phone call that really set the tone for the rest of your relationship. Liz, how did you feel when you got off that phone call? I felt ebullient. I mean, I was just like, I couldn't believe it, you know? I was enrolled in um, graduate school. I was in a, a master's program in social work. You know, I was actually in a class right then about the genetic roots of psychopathology. And so all of this had been, you know, swirling around my head of like, where do I come from and what am I bringing in? And so it was like getting all of these doors open and there being sunshine and, you know, green meadows through the doorway and instead of something scary. And so there was that. And there was the fact that, you know, she was just lovely to talk to. We had so much in common. It's like that, it's like that classic 
nurture nature argument is that we had all of these things that we both liked and, you know, and I sewed and she's a sewer and, and, you know, I like to do crafts and she's crafty and we're both huge readers and, and thoughtful and liberals. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was just, it was so much fun. It was just, that's just what I remember just wanting to, I think I probably did. I think I probably like whooped and hugged Stephen and maybe did a little dance that it was turning out the way that it was. I was just lighter than air and, and I just, oh, she's lovely. She's lovely. She's just lovely. And I just knew that this was not going to be a single phone call. Where did I come from? Who are you? What can you tell me about my medical history? That there was going to be a lot more to it than that. Mary, you mentioned in your story that the country was right on the edge of massive social change when you became pregnant. But at the time, it was still quite taboo to have a child outside of marriage. How did you handle the stigma of being pregnant and single at the time? This whole judgment package is a very strange thing for me because I sort of felt like I had broken society's rules and I got caught. And I've always owned up to my mistakes and tried to make them right. So I didn't feel a lot of shame. In fact, I didn't feel any shame. And it drove the lady who ran the boarding house for unwed mothers crazy that I did things like sit on the front steps. The other young woman that I shared a room with and I would walk down the street with our big bellies and catch a bus and go do things. You know, I think she thought that we were supposed to hide away and be very abashed by the horrible thing that we had done. And I never felt that. So one of the stars of your story, Mary, is your social worker, Louisa. I'm curious, were you able to pass any mementos along to baby Liz through Louisa? While I was pregnant, I I knit a baby blanket for her. I told the social worker that I wanted that to go with her. And the social worker said, we don't pass along keepsakes or mementos from the birth parents to the adoptive parents because sometimes it gets in the way of the adoptive parents feeling like the child is theirs. Perfectly logical, defensible. And I looked at this blanket that I had spent hours and hours on and I said, well, okay then. I'd folded it up and put it in my suitcase. Yeah, you want to talk about a big, ugly, snotty cry when I opened up the mailbox and I pulled that package out because she didn't tell me she was sending it. It was a surprise with the, along with the, the note to explain its origin story. That was definitely, uh, that was an ugly cry. A good cry, but <laughs> yeah, that was, I've, I've got it um, in the bottom of my cedar chest. All three of my kids came home from the hospital in it. Oh, that's really beautiful. Uh, packing that blanket away must have been so heartbreaking. Mary, I wish you would have had just a crystal ball to see that the future was actually going to be really joyful. And who knew, you know, but I, you know, as I used it in subsequent years for the family that Don and I made, it was never used without a reminder of whose it was. Did you enjoy that or was it a little painful or 
Did you like the reminder? Yeah, I, I tend to be very optimistic. And, you know, I had my dark days when I would fantasize a lemony snicket kind of existence for this unknown child that I had put out into the wider world. But for the most part, I believed Louisa. So I would create tea party scenarios for her and, and, and you know, positive imaginary stories. And I'm, I'm sure my fantasies are no closer to reality than anybody else's fantasies about anything. But they were the thing, you know, it was the sort of the engine that, that kind of kept me moving. And I, and I, if I did not believe Louisa was right, if I, if I had had a different social worker, I might have been in a very different place in my life. The irony is that when Liz's parents took her home and made her theirs, they named her Elizabeth. And when Don and my first child was born, we named her Elizabeth. So I have two Elizabeths, and they are in so many ways the same girl. I just, I just keep getting reminded over and over again how strangely wonderful family ties are. Mary, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. When your family reads this story, what lessons do you want them to learn or what do you want them to understand about you? Well, my number four grandchild is an adopted child. So I hope that he especially can understand that it's okay to be curious, it's okay to search, and that he's going to be strong enough to face whatever he finds. I have offered to Liz's boys the opportunity to ask me anything they wanted when they turned about 13. I figured that would be old enough to kind of understand the nuance and the difference between giving a child away and and doing it for reasons that were bigger than my desire to hold on to her. You know, I'm not an especially brave person. Bull. But I, I, I think that it is something, it was something that didn't have a single right answer. And those are the, those are the things that are hardest in life when there is no right answer. And I'm, I'm sure we could have built something, but it would have been very hard for both of us, I think, if I'd chosen something else. Liz, what about you? What lessons would you want listeners of this story to take away? Well, it's amazing what happens when folks say yes instead of no. And really, I would say that if that if there's a lesson in all of this is that so many people said yes. So many people said, yes, I want to get to know you. Yes, you're welcome at this table instead of rejection or no. And so because of that, we've been able to have, you know, this crazy kaleidoscope of love. So, you know, what, what could be better than that? So, yes, the story, is, it feels um, uh, kind of feel good, Hallmark movie, but, but you know, there've been, we've had so much that we've walked together side by side, so much pain and, and illness and, you know, all the bad stuff too. It, it hasn't made any of that not present for our lives. It's just that there's been more people to help carry the load. 
as my children would say when they would be with their friends, well, I have four sets of grandparents. You know, they just thought that they had won the lottery. They had won, they had, they had won the lottery of love. They really had. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to get started writing your life stories or want to give the gift of StoryWorth to a loved one, head over to storyworth.com slash podcast. In our next episode... Remember that it wasn't really very nice. It wasn't what we were used to. And my mother just told us it was going to be okay. So we believed her. And, you know, the next day, that's when we went to Fontana. What happened to the home front when the troops returned? The unexpected consequence the end of World War II had for our writer's family. StoryWorth is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Krista Baum, and produced by Hannah Ray Leach. We get production help from Jill Granberg, and our mix engineer is Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.